Welcome back to Making It Awkward. I'm your host, Jessica Wilson. A quick note to listeners, this episode will briefly mention weight changes and belt loop changes I experienced as part of my experiment. Today's episode will be the wrap-up of my month of eating 80% of my calories from ultra-processed foods, also known as UPFs, in September. I'll give a run-through of how my results stack up against the personal experience of someone who changed their diet as I did. Then I'll bring Amy Fletcher back to discuss the lessons I've learned about myself through the process and some discussions about class. To recap, the inspiration behind this was the wall-to-wall coverage of Dr. Chris Van Tullican's personal experience of eating 80% of his calories from ultra-processed foods. The coverage was part of promoting his book, Ultra-Processed People, in which he details his experience. The publicity generated headlines like, what happened when a doctor only ate ultra-processed foods for a month? And even the New York Times came out with a quiz for identifying UPFs. News outlets were reporting Van Tullican's experience as if it were a universal experience, and that anyone whose diet was high in UPFs would be tired, anxious, less productive at work, and gain weight, as he did. Van Tullican also hypothesized that the UPFs make us unable to be full. His story was told by journalists as if it were capital N news, not a book review, not an anecdote, but as if it were a research study and had universal application. So I wanted to try this to see if, one, it actually is a universal truth, and whether my experiment would get the same coverage if I don't have the clickbait experiences that he did. The rules I set out for myself were getting at least 80% of my calories from UPFs. I decided that the easiest way for me to do this was to only get 300 calories of unprocessed foods because I certainly eat more than 1,500 calories a day. But I also didn't want to have anyone telling me I was lying about my math. I defined a UPF as a food that had five ingredients and at least one additive. I wrote down most of the foods I ate in a journal. I also kept track of my sleep, anxiety, happiness, hunger, and constipation on a five-point scale for both August and September. Van Tullican kept track of both his weight and his belt loops. He did a month of completely unprocessed foods prior to his UPF month and ended up losing weight. I ate my regular foods because that's reality and a better baseline comparison. In both my August and September, I had a couple of days with a seizure flare and both months had days on which I was just more tired than others due to late nights or sleep disruption. I didn't specifically track my work productivity, something that Van Tullican noted got worse as his month went on. Honestly, I didn't know how to track it and even how to measure it if I could. During my month, where Van Tullican was more hungry, I was more full. I went longer periods between meals without realizing, and you'll hear from Amy that my food-related anxiety was significantly reduced. Noticing that I wasn't tired in the afternoon and wasn't drinking caffeine to make it to 5 p.m., or needing to take a nap in the afternoon to get through the rest of the day, both were certainly an indication that my productivity was improved. Regarding my mood... As I said in the last episode, when my spouse is able to notice that I'm less cranky and complaining less, I'm a very dramatic adult when it comes to adulting, is quite an objective change. Overall, my energy is up, 
and I had the desire to do an interval workout for the first time in all of 2023. My anxiety was unchanged, and I wasn't constipated, as Ventolican reported he was. I don't have belt loops to measure because I simply do not wear belts every day. What I do have is a dog leash that goes around my waist, which was previously a very snug fit. In the last month, a small but noticeable gap between my waist and the leash developed. In August, my weight went down 0.1 kilograms, and in September, it went up 0.3 kilograms. So between these two months, I'd say that my weight was unchanged and subject to what I would say is a normal fluctuation. But if we look at what researchers put in their publications, that 0.3 kilogram increase would likely go on month after month because of my diet. But would the gap in my leash continue to grow month after month as well? The math there just isn't mathing. Ventilikin did a bunch of lab tests pre and post his month, and I did not. Honestly, I'm glad I didn't do the lab tests. In all of the commentary by Ventilikin and others, including Lustig, the hypothesis is that UPFs cause hormonal imbalance that makes us hungrier. They all spoke about the scary outcomes of never being full again, but I was fuller and I wasn't as hungry. So regardless of what my hormones might be doing, their dramatic claims were not realized in my experience. And now we'll hear my interview and discussions with Amy about my experience. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Glad to be back. Your episode has the second most listens um, on the podcast so far. It really hit home for a lot of people who became similarly confused, but also very aware that it was nothing, that all of this meant nothing. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming back to talk more about it. You're welcome. Okay. So you ate ultra processed foods for a month. What were the highlights of your ultra processed month? What were the lowlights? Generally. Yeah. I would say the highlights of my month are the Costco's uh, pupusas. (laughs) Let me tell you, I'm very excited about them. Uh, And finally trying Trader Joe's soy riso. It's an amazing food. I know. Like people have talked about it for years, but I just had to get to a Trader Joe's. I also got to remember that our local store, um, Rancho San Miguel, has like a full Mexican food set up there. As far as other food bits the low lights would be kevin's like ultra processed meals from uh costco that actually needed me to add salt which was very confusing that was around week three and week three was like a real low in all of this i was like oh i must be tired of ultra processed foods turns out it was just stuff that didn't taste good so i was like on week two of meatballs from costco and like kevin's and so back to your point amy and something that you're always trying to convince me of (laughs) if it doesn't taste good like i just don't want to eat it exactly yeah so i i've told you multiple times if it doesn't taste good i'm just not gonna eat it and i'll be hungry and i know that like I need to eat, but it's just not it's simply not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Did it make eating easier or harder? It was harder because I had to write shit down and like calculate what 80% was. And like week one in, I was like, this is the worst thing ever. For every eating disorder patient out there that's had to keep a food log, I'm sorry. But after that, like snacks and meals were great. I had all of my Costco food in the fridge or freezer for the entire month. I didn't have to grocery shop 
at all if I didn't want to for those meals. So that was amazing. And I was complaining, like not at all about having to figure out what to eat, which is something that I do on the regular. (laughs) What types of food were you typically eating before this month? All right. So again, Amy, you and I have talked about food a lot. You are one of my food friends. You enjoy cooking and making these for people. I, on the other hand, just enjoy eating your food. So I mentioned on Instagram that I would just pull out like canned garbanzo beans, put like spices and avocado and hot sauce on it because I had like five minutes to make a decision about what to eat. Um, I had eggs multiple times a day because again, didn't have to think about it. So that'd be multiple times. Oh, I would call a like spoon of peanut butter a snack if I was running back and forth between someplace or just fruit. Again, like running back and forth between like meetings. But this time I'd sit down and put like ultra processed yogurt and granola together um, and have something that I would recommend to another person was a lot of what happened. Like I would actually recommend this meal. This is not silly. I had to post a lot of it to Instagram, which probably helped, (laughs) helped me make sure it looked like a meal, but highly recommend meals. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the the right side. (laughs) So what did you expect the outcomes to be? I really thought it was going to be neutral. If somebody, yes, had asked me, I thought I wouldn't see any impact. The drama in what people had been documenting, you know, their sleep, their anxiety, everything, they were just unhappy. I was like, this kind of sounds dramatic. And I've eaten like a variety of foods over a lot of time. I thought things were going to be the same. I sure didn't think that I was going to feel better and that I was going to complain less and get more adulting done in the evenings. That was wild to me. I didn't know that that could be improved <laughs> until until I was eating more. Again, I wasn't eating like more larger volumes of food. I was just eating more foods that were processed. Why do you think you did feel better? So this one you might have to help me out with, Amy, from the science and processing portion, like part of it. I didn't really control for any variables other than like what I was putting in my mouth. So it could have been the additional additives for all I know. But my guess is that I had more readily absorbable calories that I wasn't just moving a bunch of fiber through. So like in that can of garbanzo beans, there was, you know, a lot of fiber, a lot of starch that I wasn't breaking down and it was just like passing through. But in things that are more finely processed, there's, you know, more things that are both bioavailable as far as nutrients, but also, you know, more calories. And so if I were to guess, it was because of like more calories. And scientifically, it meant sense. Like I was experiencing afternoon fatigue, crankiness overall. So, you know, more calories (laughs) makes sense. That would solve that. What do you think about that part? Amy? My reason is actually like not that scientific. One, I think it's like having hung out with you, you like food is a big like stress and theme for you. Like you're always like thinking about like, what am I going to eat next? How am I going to get protein, fat, fiber, whatever. (laughs) But if you don't have to think about it, like it just removes a layer of stress from your brain. So like, you know, it makes sense that I think anxiety would go down. And two, and I'm going to keep harping on this point. I think it's like eating, like feeling joy when you eat, like food freaking tasting good. 
Like mm. it's more enjoyable to eat when you're not like choking down bland garbanzo beans, right? Mm-hmm. And the week you felt the worst was the week that you had the crappiest meal. So. Oh, look at that part. Because I did. So the food anxiety too, like one of my narratives around my friends or in my life is that I'm always hungry. And I really think I just was because a snack was a fruit rather than you know a part of a meal and other stuff were snacks. So I've, again, not been always hungry this month and nor have I been overly full. So that's interesting. Yes, there definitely was an anxiety of making sure that I had enough food so I didn't have a meltdown. Having like being overly hungry is not great. But what I think also happened for like Chris Van Tullican and other people was that you're right, like the foods that they were eating, they didn't like. They did it did not taste good. Um, I think he was eating a bunch of like microwave lasagnas that he didn't like, but was like committed to doing just for this experience. And that's just not super realistic for folks and doesn't really encompass all that UPFs are. Yeah. And I know you and I like texted a bit while you were doing this. Like I'd be like, I wonder how much of like my lunch is like UPF. And it like was rarely a ton, but then there'd be a day where I was like, I needed some data dots tonight. Like I had a rough day at work. And so I think like finding the balance point between like, I think most people don't need a diet that's 80% UPF. Like if you took like a bell curve, right. Mm. But like some UPFs aren't going to kill you. And I think just figuring out like what is realistic and like what is representative is also really important. Like I think the way that you eat is like more representative. Like, yeah, people need fast. I have those same, I use those same pupusas. Like we have them for when I'm like, I'm not cooking dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also taste good. Yeah. It tastes real good. Um, Yeah. They're also good for breakfast. Fry an egg, put it on top, a little hot sauce. Yeah. I had eggs, everything. I love that. Had not thought about it. Okay. Would you have done anything differently if you could do it all over again? I would have had more variety in my meals. Rather than getting everything from Costco and having to eat it for a week, I would have tried a lot more things. And I don't know. What notes... Did you have on the stuff that I was eating, Amy? Um, I think most of it looked good. Again, I think like adding more variety, like I think it probably did just get pretty boring. Like, you know, buying a Costco pack of something and eating it every day is rough. And then also just the ability to adapt because I think sometimes like my body really does want like a salad. Like I'm just like, Mm -hmm. "Mm," like a cold, crisp salad sounds really good. Mm -hmm. And sometimes tater tots sound good and sometimes like pizza and a salad sound good and so I think the hard part for you would have been like just not being able to respond to your body's need Mm. yes it's a good point we had a bunch of fruit and I was like one I'm either gonna have to like count this like I don't want I don't want to count it versus like literally count uh but then two yeah I could only eat 30 percent of my calories from like every extra thing. So that was, yes, also annoying. What are you going to do going forward? I could really see myself being lazy again, which is super unfortunate. Like as this week is ending, I'm like, I don't have to, don't have to do this anymore. I can just count like a handful of almonds as a snack as I'm going back through. So I am kind of like nervous, worried 
uh, because I definitely need either these UPS or to cook a bunch of food and I'm just not going to cook a bunch of food. So like I have to put the thought into buying more UPS and not just getting lazy as that is my tendency. What if you take off the month going to Costco, buy a bunch of uh, UPF snacks and stuff, have them on hand, but try it, just try it for like two weeks without logging. I think the logging is why mm. it feels like work for you. Cause like to me, mm-hmm. I don't know, like it feels like the same amount of work, like eating and eating is sometimes hard. So I don't know. <laughs> eating is sometimes hard. I think I'll go try a lot more of the individual meals and still have a good time, yeah. but I need to focus more on my snacks. Yeah. And not just having it be a spoonful of peanut butter. Like I was instead of a spoonful of peanut butter, I was having like toast with peanut butter on it for, you know, snacks or whatever. And still having to count the peanut butter, which was annoying. But yes, just eating more overall. And then asking my spouse, like, am I complaining? Am I cranky? Am I trying to nap in the afternoon? I think will be it. Awesome. So Something that I wanted to bring up with you is that all of these guidelines and rules and everything, you know, seem to be about helping the public, uh, but it really brings up for me the Michael Pollans, the Dr. Oz's of the world that really seem to me making this about them. And even about Dr. Lustig from, you know, last episode and a couple episodes before that, how all of a sudden, like, it seems like these guys are at the center of these conversations. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, like, this is, these sorts of things are not usually in my zeitgeist, I guess. I became aware of Michael Pollan when I was working for a large food company in the Bay Area, and a couple people had read his book, I think it was In Defense of Food, and it inspired some projects for us to see how that would translate, you know, to new products potentially. But a lot of it feels just like recycled information and just someone like really having like one really passionate opinion and driving it home. And even looking at someone like Dr. Oz, I feel like his opinion on like the right diet has evolved over time. I think it's just like very frustrating to follow because I think you know, like the Dr. Oz's, the Michael Pollan's of the world have access to like time and money and resources that I certainly do not. I won't speak for everyone listening to your podcast. And I think that they don't take into account the context of the everyman. <laughs> the everyman. Or every woman. No, I know. I, I, I think the everyman totally works because this has all been, you know, from what I know about them, definitely white men, but perhaps cis straight white men as well. And how easily they were able to catch attention, uh, but also how they had the opportunity to do so, right? So two pieces. For Chris Van Tulligan, his, you know, he had done podcasts and TV shows and like been profiled on BBC in the UK. His wife works for the Daily Mail. So getting his, you know, book and excerpts in there were really easy. We're all familiar with Dr. Oz and his journey. Yeah. And you and I were chatting about Michael uh, J. Fox is the brother-in-law to Michael Pollan. And even though they haven't actually done promo together, you know, that gives you access to rooms and spaces that the rest of us who might have different ideas about food or nutrition don't have access to. Something that made the ultra processed food like next level was that it wasn't only like elitism. It was also you have to cook it 
yourself. So it included anything that you're bringing home from the store. So whether or not it's coming from Whole Foods or wherever, like that was somebody else made it for you and it wasn't okay. So the additional labor that was actually required for this was like next level for me. I think that's true. And I like I was thinking about this and we haven't talked about this yet. It's really interesting because when food first was able to be bought at grocery stores, right? Like when like processed food or like food processing was rising as an industry, because it's all we've always been processing stuff, like whether it is turning wheat into flour, um, it's just evolved. But a lot of it was about convenience. A lot of it was about like novelty and it was really well regarded. Like frozen dinners for like, you know, busy moms when moms first went back to work were really heralded as a as an like convenient option or like we don't have fresh produce in most of the country around, right? Like there is I work a lot with tomatoes. There is one tomato season a year for processing tomatoes. So you can only get them fresh during that season, but if you want to use whole peeled or or diced tomatoes, they have to be canned. If you just stick tomatoes in your fridge, they'll go bad. (laughs) And I feel like we've now like come almost full circle where it's like, yes, that's available, but like you shouldn't need to use it even though people are working more. We know that. Making less money, we know that. So it's just interesting that these like inventions that were really important for safety reasons or convenience reasons are like being demonized now when the reason we needed them in the first place have only been exasperated. Mm -hmm. You've got me thinking again, like, who is this for? Because it's supposed to be the public, like we'll put that in quotation marks. And then these researchers are talking about, you know, poor people and what they need And like, this cannot be (laughs) like talking about ultra processed foods cannot be what the public actually needs, what you and I actually need um, in order to like, quote, be healthier or have mitochondrial fitness. So who do you think it's for in the end? Honestly, like rich white people and like people that have nine to five jobs, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five and that don't have a lot of like extracurricular activities for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. There are some people where like their whole like hobby and their passions are taking care of their home and like making a home cooked dinner. And that's great. But like, I'm really active in like various community groups or in my labor union plus my job. And I like want to spend time with my wife occasionally. (laughs) Just occasionally. (laughs) Just occasionally. I think this, further serves to put like those who are rich and mostly white, like just like reinforcing their position, you know, at the top of either the, you know, the caste pyramid or in white supremacy and like make them feel better about themselves. Like again, by distinguishing themselves uh, from other people who have to eat ultra processed foods. And yet that I think that is the rhetoric while rich white people eat ultra processed foods all the time. So I'm like, really, who is this for? I don't, it's so confusing to me. And rich, you know, white kids will eat Lunchables because that's what they'll eat. So what are we doing? It's really confusing to me. The part to me that like when we would talk about this, I would just always be like, this is just not a helpful framework for modern society. I think I said that like every, like (laughs) at some point I would like rage text that in all caps. Yeah. 
Because like no one exists in a bubble, like at least looking at like my friends who have a variety of socioeconomic statuses, right, who are variety of racial backgrounds, like no one eats like this and no one can. And we all appreciate like, yeah, I would love to like be able to go to the bakery, you know, a couple times a week and get fresh bread. But like one, the closest bakery to me that has like actual like home baked fresh bread isn't walking distance. It's like biking distance, but it's not a cute bike ride. (laughs) So then I would like have to drive, which is like kind of annoying. Also, like fresh bread doesn't stay good that long. Yeah. So you have to plan around it. Like it's just a lot more thought and hassle when I'm already trying to like make sure I eat enough, make sure I sleep enough, make sure I drink water, Mm -hmm. go to work. Yeah. And I was just thinking about sleep last night and this morning because, you know, there is, quote, research that not getting X amount of hours of sleep is supposedly like unhealthy and it's you know more cortisol and inflammation if we don't get enough sleep on and on and on but nobody's out there saying if you can't have good sleep like don't sleep at all which like you know so what is this all or nothing it's weird for sure yeah i don't know it's too much i really feel i just don't think it's like useful or helpful i think food is already so imbued with like morality and people already feel bad when they like eat what they like versus what they're supposed to be eating and like yeah I think it just makes it harder and I am of the opinion that as we are all living through late stage capitalism and you know democracy is crumbling like do we need (laughs) to make anything harder 1000% agree you and I have talked a bit about the race and class like overtones and you know like dog whistle of all of this and now um have you had any thoughts about things that particularly stick out to you about all of this i think for like the class piece which is of course tied to race the implications of like potentially working shift work like i said or like multiple jobs which is already shamed in this country right we we like don't exactly treat you know poor people well as a nation And I feel like this is just like a further way to shame them. Um, I know one of the big conversations that I've or like talking points that I've heard people say is, right, you shouldn't be able to use like food benefits Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. junk food, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But also like sometimes, honestly, when you've had a really like long or bad day, all I want is like some tater tots. Right. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. Like when I think it's ignoring the part that like sometimes, especially for people with like less means, food can be like one of the like cheaper or simpler joys that we can experience, right? And so mm-hmm. like not everyone can afford to like fly and travel, but like, you know, maybe you can buy yourself a treat, but now you have to feel bad about that treat because eating an ice cream bar is going to kill you. Right. It's actually going to cause my mitochondria to be unfit. Right. Yes. For those who have seen Super Size Me, which was when Morgan Spurlock spent a month eating only McDonald's foods, the summary of that was basically like fast food is the demon, soda is going to kill all of us. And inherently, I cannot separate like our narrative about fast food from race and class. I was just talking to somebody from the examination, a journalist who you know, put out a call for dietitians to have, like, bring feedback on the profession. And I said, like, you focusing on the marketing of fast food to black and brown communities 
is actually not what we need. <laughs> like what you're doing, it's making this about fast food and marketing and inherently tying it to uh, black and brown kids. What you're not doing is looking at the whys of all of this. Like why are people eating fast food? And I just feel like we don't care about black and brown kids, poor people in general, when we chalk up their health to whether or not they're eating fast food. Well, and I think it's also frustrating when I hear people say like, well, like anyone can grow a garden. (laughs) I just feel like there's a lot of like, well, like you should take on like this onus, right? Like you shouldn't eat fast food. You should make it yourself. I've like made homemade burger patties before. Do they Mm -hmm. taste better? Yes. Are they annoying to make? Also, yes. (laughs) People are always like, well, like just start by growing. Like anyone can have a container garden. My wife and I are both very smart people. We are like, we are not (laughs) able to grow a garden. We have like, I think we've yielded like 12 tomatoes since we've Mm -hmm. lived in our house. And then there's also like an education piece. I know like my uncle runs a really cool nonprofit in New York. One of the things he talked about is that people don't always know how to like prepare fresh food. So like, great. Like everyone is now, let's say everyone has access to like organic kale (laughs) what do you do with it to make it taste good because people won't eat food that doesn't taste good like not everyone knows all of these things um, and that information is not necessarily readily available and so I think there's also an element of education that's missing and it's just like further shaming people like we're all supposed to intuit Mm -hmm. like where to get it what to do with it it's supposed Mm -hmm. to taste amazing and that's just not realistic or fair yeah I have two Notes on that one. I too had a garden this year and I regularly have, you know, a garden, but because of the growing season, it was very wet and cold. Uh, Same with the 12 tomatoes, but also like 12,000 gallons of water. So like, yay, I love playing in the, in the dirt, but those 12 tomatoes probably cost me like $50. Ridiculous. And two, Yes, on the education piece. And this is the part where, again, I think the lustigs of the world just have no clue. I used to volunteer at a clinic, a health clinic specifically, and there would be produce boxes from whatever grocery store. It'd be piled high from, you know, floor to ceiling. And it'd be like spaghetti squash or like radicchio or, you know, whatever this food was. And, you know, kale would be there sometimes. But one, I personally, don't I'm not going to make a spaghetti squash. Like I'm not going to take home five and like make one this week. If I take one home, I'm lucky if I make it in the next two months. It just takes time. People need appliances for these things also. And also they don't have a bunch of calories. So great. I'm glad you're eating. And you also have to eat a bunch of other stuff. So like the reality of these recommendations, I just, it's so clear that it's more about these guys and their legacy and their research and getting together with people who share these philosophies and just talking about others as if they know nothing. It's wild. It's very sad to me. I don't think anyone, right? If you, if you talk to people that do eat a lot of UPS in their regular diet, whatever those are, right? I don't think anyone's arguing that it wouldn't be better to have like freshly cooked homemade you know locally grown produce but we have to have like the time and resources to do it and so like unless we can like fix that part all of it to me is just like piling on another source of like stress agree 
Again, thanks so much to Amy for coming on the show and thinking through all of this with me. But the media narrative and research communities continue to repackage the notion that processed food is bad and kale and quinoa are good will continue to get nowhere with our nutrition policy. When we make everything an individual responsibility and tell people to just make better choices, we won't get any closer to equitable food access. Many people don't get to make choices. When the people who make policy consider themselves to be the experts of other people's experiences and consider the public to just be ignorant, we'll stay where we are. We continue to see how the American narratives of bootstrapping and rugged individualism continue to retain the status quo. Research and medicine also continue to uphold health as a moral imperative. Our longevity is an indicator of whether or not we're a good person. As I detailed in all of its absurdity in my book, when I attended the Healthy Kitchens Healthy Lives Conference in 2022, a weekend that paid homage to the godfather of nutrition, Walter Willett, the idea that we could kale and quinoa our way to societal superiority was front and center. The conference cost $1,000 to $1,500, including accommodations in Napa, California. We were told that the reason all of us well-off people should care about food security was because hungry kids become a drain on our healthcare system and aren't as productive as adults. Those were the reasons. Not because we care about the humanity of others, but because someone else's experience of income inequity and food apartheid have direct negative impacts on our lives. I hope that the same news outlets who were excited by Van Tullican's experience are similarly interested in mine. It definitely wasn't sensational, but I think it's important. If I absorbed more energy from my food, it makes sense that I would have less fatigue and be less hungry. Bodies don't have calculators and aren't machines, but this time, at least in my case, the math seems to be mathing. Would I recommend this experiment to others? No. But it sure seems like I need to be taking the advice I give to everyone else in my life and eat more food. If I'm not experiencing peak metabolic health, and we have no idea, I'm totally fine with that. Feeling better, having more energy, and especially being a better person to be around are totally worth whatever my insides are doing. That's one of the things I think gets lost in all of this. In the absence of the health and nutrition narratives, what do we want from our lives? Who do we want to be? Those are things I'll be exploring in further episodes. Thanks so much for everyone's interest and support of this project. Next week, we'll hear from another food friend, Allison, on how she's been making things awkward. The best way to support this show is to follow, subscribe, rate, review, and share it with a friend. Until next time, make it awkward. I'm Jessica Wilson, and you've been listening to Making It Awkward. This episode was sponsored by Sacramento Outboard Services and is a production of The Body Politic. The fantastic Jen Jacobs did the editing and mixing. 